Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience and Autism Stories is where we interview autistics to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. So often, autistic people camouflage or mask just in order to survive situations, environments, and people that are not supportive of their autistic identity. Kieran Rose joins us on this episode of Autism Stories to talk about the implications of masking and how it is connected to burnout and monotropism. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Kieran, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start off with how I start off a lot of these interviews and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Um, oh, it's a, it's a long and interesting one, this one. Um, I'll try and keep it short, though. I was diagnosed when I was 23, um, which was in 2003, so it was quite a long time ago. And at that time, the, the autism narrative was even worse than it is now. Um, there were no autistic adults around. Um, you know, the internet was only just starting and all of those kind of things. So I didn't know what to do with my diagnosis because it was all about, all the books were about children and all of, all of that kind of thing. Um, so I just parked it for a very, very long time and carried on going through the kind of cycles of depression and burnout and things that, that lots of autistic adults go through. And it wasn't until my oldest son was born, my first son, my wife got whisked off to theatre because she needed an operation. I was left holding this newborn baby. Didn't know what to do with it. He stared at me for three hours and we had this kind of telepathic communication. Um, it was like this conversation that we had. And I knew he was like me. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to support him properly unless I understood myself and what was happening to me. So that really sparked me off in kind of wanting to find out more about who I was and what, what autism meant for me and all of those kind of things. But it wasn't until about three or four years later that I happened to stumble across the autistic community on Facebook. And it was like my eyes were opened. It was like all these people were talking about me, but they didn't even know me. And it was really, it was, you know, it was, it was really quite, um, it was quite scary at first that, that, that these strangers knew so much about my life and were able to talk about things that had happened to them that had also happened to me. And I had no awareness before that, that, that this was kind of, you know, this was, this was the reality for lots of autistic people. And so from there, um, I never look back. Uh, I have learned more about autism from the autistic community than I have from reading any textbook, any research paper, from talking to parents, from talking to professionals. All of it has been irrelevant compared to the knowledge that I've gleaned from the autistic community about myself and about autism in a kind of wider sense as well. Absolutely. I certainly can relate to that. Now, you're, you're the founder of The Autistic Advocate, a website that incorporates your experiences as an autistic person and an autism professional. You talk on the website about how much of what people will read um, they'll, they may find challenging. 
Why is it important for you to uh, challenge your readers? It's a really good question. It's, it's important because the narratives that we live under are lazy. Um, they are ill-informed. Um, much of it is based upon projection and external observation. Um, and it, it massively lacks insight from the autistic community, from autistic people themselves. Um, we have a diagnostic criteria, which is overly simplistic, um, very narrow, um, very problematic in a lot of ways. It focuses on boys, white boys, white boys who present in a particular way, white boys who present in a particular way who are extremely traumatized and stressed, and it doesn't actually get to the root of what being autistic actually means. So um, I look at autism through a cultural perspective in terms of, um, you know, the autistic community has its own culture. To be autistic is, a, is to be a part of a culture in terms of our language and our experiences, um, our art, our writing, our science, all of those kind of things. And when non-autistic people find problems within us, it's because their culture is butting up against our culture. You know, this is a very kind of obvious kind of narrative for me there, perspective for me there. So when we talk about challenging other people, it's challenging the notions that they have that are based around this idea that there's a normal and that non-autistic people are centered within this normal and that we are other to that normal. So... I want people to be challenged because we do have this lazy narrative and this lazy narrative does not support autistic people or identify us in the right way. It doesn't validate our experiences. It doesn't help us to live fulfilled and, and, and lives and to be our authentic selves. We literally cannot even be that in the world. So, you know, so I want people to be challenged so that they do better. They claim to want to support us. So you need to live up to that claim by being challenged and doing better. You focus a lot on your website about something we've discussed many times here on Autism Stories, which is autistic masking and, and burnout. What do you see as the connection between masking and burnout? When you are autistic and you, from right from the moment you're born, really, um, you're invalidated in terms of your, wittingly and unwittingly, invalidated in terms of your senses, your communication style, the way that you think, the way that you feel, the way that you move even, you, as you grow up, you develop a trauma response to that, which is to be inauthentic, to kind of project an acceptable version of yourself, which is, which is what masking is. I see masking as a trauma response where you fulfill other people's needs and expectations. To sustain that uses a lot of energy, a huge, huge, huge amount of energy. So, when we talk about burnout, what we're talking about is the, the autistic body and mind being unable to sustain that mask, unable to use that energy anymore. So we enter this period that we, amongst the autistic community, have been talking about for decades, which the, the, the academic and the, the, the rest of the world don't even know really exists. These phases of burnout, which some people identify as regression, which I think is a very pathological and, and irresponsible notion, because actually what we're looking at is a loss of skills based on our inability to fulfill other people's expectations. Um, you know, so, so, but these things are pathologized from an external point of view. It's seen that we choose to mask, we choose to hide ourselves. You know, when we're in burnout, it's, it's regression because, you know, that's part of autism. And none of this is actually part of being autistic. This is a response to existing in this world, which has, has its own culture, 
and insist that we live within that culture as that culture wants us to. So, you know, so it, it's all wrapped up in this kind of this problematicness of people do not understand us. So therefore we're wrong and we're broken and we need fixed. But actually we're tired because, you know, we can't keep up this mask. Sustaining that leads us into physical and physical and mental and emotional exhaustion. Do you see um, some common misconceptions uh, that people have about masking and burnout? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Um, what I touched on just before in terms of people see it as a choice in terms of masking, that it's a kind of, you know, it's a series of very basic social strategies that before we enter a social situation, we pick them up, we put our mask on, we walk through that social situation, then we take our mask off at the end. And I don't see it like that at all. I see this as a whole lifelong developmental embodying experience. And this is an experience that's um, when you look at the black community and they talk about passing, when you talk, when you look at the LGBTQ plus IA plus community and they talk about the closet. And these are notions that marginalized groups talk about all the time. The autistic experience of this is obviously unique to autistic people in terms of how we do it. But the actual idea and the kind of the ableism and the, the other isms behind it are very much grounded in similar marginalized groups. So, you know, it's a, this is the narrative of masking that has been completely missed because it's seen as that, you know, we pick it up, we put it on and we take it back off again. And the exhaustion and the energy levels that go into doing that are not taken into account properly because it is seen as that pick it up and put it down kind of thing. And then there's other notions around that as well in terms of because it's assumed that it's something we pick up, it's easy to stop doing when in actual facts, because we're talking about trauma responses and lifelong responses to trauma and invalidation, it's not simple to stop doing. You know, I look at it more of a you need to take more control of your life and control over your environment and the people you spend time with. That's how you unmask in inverted commas. But no, again, it seems, what, what, what can we do to stop autistic people masking? Well, you need to change society in order to do that, <laughs> <laughs> which is overly simplistic. But, you know, but it's such a huge thing. And it's never looked at through those kind of views. It's seen as a kind of like, how can we change the child again or the adult again in order to stop them doing it? And it's all about manipulation and modulation and nothing about authenticity. Now, you talked earlier about masking being a trauma response. Do you see it ever being a good idea for autistics to mask? In a way, because mask, masking is a natural human behavior. So um, we have this thing called context switching, which all human beings engage in. We change our personalities a little bit, depending on who we're spending our time with and what environments we're in and things like that. But when we're talking about autistic masking, we're going that one step further because of the invalidation that kind of leads into that and the lack of authenticity that we can we carry with us all the time. So is it sometimes useful? Yes, because it keeps us safe and um, it enables us to navigate situations which are complex and difficult, um, particularly for people of color and black communities um, in terms of kind of, you know, who are more likely to be identified by the police in negative ways and things like that. Yes, it keeps safe. But also there's a, a bit of a paradoxical element to this because what keeps us safe also harms us in the long term. So again, when I talk about, you know, people talk about stopping masking or taking the mask off, um, actually I view it as taking control. The more control you have over your environment, 
the more control you have over who you spend your time with, the more control over where safe places are for you and how you carry those safe places with you, the less likely you are to need to mask because you will be around people in environments which are safe. Um, and much of that is embedded around spending your time with autistic people as well, because that's a it's, a it's a huge battery regenerator for me. And is I know it is for a lot of other autistic people as well, where you can be authentic and you don't perceive that you're being judged all the time. So it can be good in terms it keeps you safe, but also it is so harmful as well. So to engage in it as a everyday lifelong thing is just a huge, hugely problematic thing so i think there just needs to be balance and currently there for many of us there isn't any balance at all now thinking about safety if someone is going to unmask or try to take more control of their life what are some safe ways to go about doing that it's always good to have kind of supportive strategies in place and uh, i i have i'm i'm very fortunate because you know i'm a 41 year old man at the time we're doing this um and I've had a lot of time to think about this and a lot of time as an adult to enable that I can have safe people and I can choose who I spend my time with. Um, I'm self-employed, so I can pick and choose who I work with. I create, I have an environment for myself, which I bring people into when I want to bring people into. And I don't go out as much into other people's unsafe environments as, as much as I can. So I'm very, very privileged in that regard. When we look at children, Children don't have those choices, um, especially children who are able to speak and are in mainstream schools. You know, you have no choice over where you go to school, who you spend your time with. You're cooped up for eight hours a day in a very, very controlled and managed environment, which is controlled and managed by someone who isn't you. Um, so you have no choice there. And it's, it's harmful and it's dangerous to exist in those environments often. So this is something that kind of it's really important for parents to kind of step in and say, how can I enable my child to make the right choices over who to be around, over to where they can go safely and where they can exist? And over time, that child can then take over in terms of saying, I'm okay with this person, I'm not okay with that person, I'm okay in this environment, but not okay in this environment, or at least what adjustments do I need in order to enter that environment? So it's very much an individualized thing, but basically things like knowing your sensory needs and understanding your sensory needs and knowing who's good for you and who isn't good for you knowing what adjustments you need to make for yourself in terms of do you need ear defenders do you need an AAC all of those kind of things and my number one thing is having an escape route no matter how old you are or no matter where you go have an escape route so that if things become too much you can just pick yourself up and go and not have to apologize for that as well definitely get the heck out of there (laughs) (laughs) those things are hugely privileged in order to understand yourself to those levels mm-hmm. to to feel safe enough to be able to leave places to be feel safe enough to say i need to make adjustments for myself there's a lot of privilege with that so this is when it comes down to parents and wider society to start recognizing that those things need to be in place mm-hmm. and it's okay and that it's okay to have a, an escape route exactly it, if someone thinks that they may be in in burnout um, or they may be on the way to um, having burnout, what are some key things that they should be looking for? Yeah, there's kind of, I don't like the, the use of the word flags because it's often used really negatively in kind of identifying things, but, but there are kind of red flags to being in burnout. 
and one of the biggest ones is your sensory system. So that if you know that all of a sudden, I don't know, lights are brighter, noises are louder, um, that you have less energy than normal, that you're maybe not able to communicate as clearly as you previously could, all of those kind of things are indicators to something's out of sync. Your body's not regulating itself as well as it previously was. And those things are indicators of burnout because they're the kind of leading. And equally, when your sensory system is dysregulated, your emotional system becomes dysregulated as well. The two go hand in hand and are really closely connected. So if you notice that maybe you are melting down more or melting down more severely or you're in shutdown more often and things like that, then again, that's an indicator that you're not on a good path at the moment and you need to take steps in order to kind of mitigate those things. And, you know, it, it's, it's becomes problematic if you have interoceptive issues and then the messages aren't being passed around or if you're alexithymic, like so many of us are, um, and you struggle to identify your emotions because recognizing those things within yourself can then become difficult. So then this is, again, why it's so important to have a good support network around you. People who can recognize when you are more dysregulated in certain ways and can actually say, I'm noticing that you are, you seem to be struggling more with noises or lights or whatever, or you're, you're struggling to communicate. Is there something going on that maybe we can look into? Maybe we can make some changes in order to support you. So, you know, so if you can get that balance of those two things hand in hand, either identifying it in yourself or having people around you who can be honest with you and tell you when they think that something isn't feeling right, then, you know, that's a really, really good way of kind of recognizing that you're going into burnout and also mitigating it as much as possible before you get there. Uh, on your website, uh, The Autistic Advocate, you have a couple of online courses you're doing. One that I'm really interested in is the one on monotropism because I've had the chance to speak with Dinah and Fergus Murray about this topic on Autism Stories previously. I'm, I'm wondering, do you see much of a connection between monotropism and masking and burnout? Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, uh, monotropism is obviously where the... The, the, the brain is kind of focused on the things that it wants to be focused on. It, it's drawn towards things that grasp its attention. Um, and I think that anecdotally, the autistic nervous system and sensory system is very much monotropic as well, that our, that our, our sensory and nervous system is framed towards our interests. So pulling away from those interests is, is often quite difficult. Um, you know, this is where so many autistic people have problems with transitions and things like that, because it's kind of moving from something that we're really, really engrossed in and pulling ourselves out of, literally pulling ourselves out of it in order to focus on something that maybe we're not as interested in. So that can cause problems. So I think when we mask, we do it monotropically. It becomes an interest to a degree. Our brain is it's focused on, on that, the attention of needing to mask in order to keep us safe. It's a self-preservation mechanism. And again, when we're talking about terms like that, again, we're talking about trauma-driven. So when the brain is monotropically focused on masking, it's using up so much energy, emotional energy, mental energy, and physical energy in order to perpetuate and project this acceptable version. And it's highly focused on that. Firstly, pulling away from that focus is really, really hard. Again, we're back to kind of unmasking and things like that. But secondly, there is, uh, I, I've had a 
co-author paper published recently um, on masking, and we talk about the act of dissociation within it, and about how over time so many late-diagnosed autistic people come to recognise that they are autistic later in life and had no aware awareness previously that they were even masking which is why I very strongly feel this is a developmental thing that we dissociate from really, really early. Now, just because you dissociate from something doesn't mean you're not using the same amount of energy. In actual fact, you're using extra energy to dissociate from it. So this connection between monotropism and masking and burnout is so tight. It's completely intersectional. The three kind of pivot around each other because we have this monotropic brain that's engaged in the masking process that can't pull away from it. And then you have the amount of energy that's being used, but the brain and the body has dissociated from it. So he's unaware that it's using this energy. So already when you're talking about in terms of kind of, if you compared the average masking autistic person to the average non-autistic person, the amount of energy that autistic person is using just to exist is, is causing us to be kind of well behind on the starting line to the non-autistic person. You know, they're well ahead on the racetrack. So they have an advantage already in terms of the amount of energy they have in order to engage and do the things that everybody kind of engages and does. So, so yeah, I think that the relationship between the three is so important. And I'm working on kind of uh, research papers with my research part, my academic research partner at the moment, where we're actually investigating the link between those two, those three things because it's fundamental and it's such an important question. I'm really glad you picked up on it because it's so key to everything here. I I will be very excited to read that research. Any idea when that will be, will, will be oh, out? It's just starting, so it's going to be a while yet. <laughs> okay. Well, I will definitely stay tuned, Kara, because I, I'm very much fascinated, and I think that's such an important research. Um, so how can people learn more about uh, what you do and the Autistic Advocate and all that great stuff? You can come and come and see me on my website. Um, it's the My website is the kind of hub of everything that I do. Um, I do have a Facebook page, um, but I kind of... I find Facebook really difficult to manage, so I post sporadically on it. On it, um, but that's just the autistic advocate on Facebook, and then uh, I have a Twitter account where um, I growl at large charities and organisations quite often. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's just Kieran Rose Seven. But my website is the real kind of hub of everything, and, and kind of, and I love the thing that I love most on there is that it's not just me. Many of my blogs have. I have guest contributors come on and, and do guest blogs and things and I might do a little introduction and a bit of framing at the end, but it's all them and it's really important to me the kind of that it's not just my voice, that other like you do with this, you know, that other autistic people get a platform and, and it's not just about me because I don't want people looking at autism as me. I want people looking at autism as a, as millions of people around the world and understanding that we are very, very individual people, but we all have this shared and relatable narrative going on within us. Hmm. Well, Kieran, I, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation today. Thanks for uh, sharing your knowledge with me and all our listeners. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thanks so much to Kieran for the conversation. In the podcast description of this episode, you can find information to learn more about Kieran and the work that Autistic Advocate does. You can also find a link to book a free call to learn how Autism Personal Coach helps the people we coach to reduce their daily overwhelm and get the things that they need and want in in their daily lives. So book a call with me today. 
If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will have a conversation with Amy Root. Talk to you then.